Hi, everyone. This is Delilah Jones of Imagine Publicity joining you for another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. I hope to always bring you topics of interest, things that you want to listen to. Well, whether it's discussion of current events, author interviews, any wide variety of subjects that you've asked for. And I'm so grateful for the tremendous feedback that that you've given and, and the suggestions. So keep it coming. Just shoot me an email at Delilah at imaginepublicity.com or you can go through my website contact form at imaginepublicity.com, of course. In 2008, the little town of Wilitka, Oklahoma, two young innocent girls were brutally gunned down on a country road. It took several years and another murder before the pieces of this case were put together. I've had knowledge of this case from the beginning through a former client and my late best friend, Susan Murphy Milano, who wrote about it, interviewed, and worked with one of the families to help connect the dots and to do her part to find justice for the three murder victims. Through the miracle of Facebook, I discovered there was a book written about this case, Now I Lay Me Down, by Faith Phillips, and I had to get my hands on it. And while, I I mean, I really got to tell you, while I was reading this book, I was just amazed at the storytelling skills that Faith has. And sitting there reading it was like watching the movie in my head, and every character coming to life from the pages. And to me, that's a sign that this is good stuff. Welcome aboard, Faith Phillips. Thank you very much, and greetings to all of your listeners out there. Yes. Fill us in on a little of your background, and why why did you feel compelled to write Now I Lay Me Down? Uh, well, I, I have a pretty interesting backstory I I knew I was a writer my entire life. In fact, I wrote my first book in the first grade. And so, but I just never really considered that writing might be a career choice. Uh, To me, it seemed something impossible for a girl from Oklahoma, especially small town Oklahoma. It seemed more like the idea that perhaps you could become an astronaut or something like that. It just didn't really seem like an option. So, I went on and um, worked hard and went to law school, went through seven years of college, got my law degree, and started practicing corporate law, uh, in-house counsel for a corporation in Oklahoma. And um, after a few years, that corporation was bought out by a much larger corporation, and the new company that came in I would go so far as to say what um, was abusive of the employees and it was, it really put me off of the corporate culture. And I, I had been, I had been writing my first book, Ezekiel's Wheels, which is a fiction novel. Um, I had been working on it for on the weekends in my spare time, three years. And when this turnover happened with the new company and I was so disgusted by their treatment of the employees, I just thought this is my opportunity to pursue my passion, which I had, I knew was writing. And uh, at the same time, I took a little bit of a spiritual journey. I, I went to Malawi, Africa, 
and served the people there. And that that one, it was I was only there for two weeks, but that was really the point in my life where I can look to and say that's when everything changed for me because I saw the need in Malawi and I saw um, hungry people, thirsty people, and somehow they still had this joy and they greeted me with warmth and they gave me their food when their children were hungry and it was just an eye-opening experience and, and when I came to the United States I had this I had a completely different perspective and outlook I suddenly became grateful for every single thing that I had and I also felt a need to shed myself of material things and the things in my life that really didn't matter and so I that just coincided with um, the corporate takeover and I started I decided this is it if I'm going to do this I'm going to do it now and I left my job I left my material things behind, and I moved back home to where I grew up and essentially mooched off of my family for a year while I completed my first book. And um, so that's how my writing got started. That's Um, an amazing story. It really is. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like the starving artist, but you kind of came in through the back door to be the starving artist. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real it's, uh, riches to rags story. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's it's just amazing that a, a two week period out of your life could make such a change, and and point you into a totally different direction. And so, what did you do? I mean, you wrote your first book. You wrote a second book, right? That's right. I have my first book is a fiction novel. And it's called Ezekiel's Wheels. It is a, a combination of historical fiction and also a bit of a psychological thriller. It's my scary book, um, but it's based on two things. It's a fictionalized account of one girl's travel on the Trail of Tears, which everyone here in Oklahoma knows about, but may, perhaps not everyone in the United States is aware that in the 1800s, the United States government forcibly removed a number of tribes from Georgia and basically the southeastern region of the United States um, and forced the Native Americans who had been living there and owned land, forced them on basically a death march across the United States south in the winter, and thousands of people died on that march. And so I am descended from. Cherokee ancestors, and I've grown up in the Cherokee culture, and so that story has always been with me since I was a young girl, and I've also heard, been told many, many legends that's a part of the Cherokee culture as well as storytelling, and so I wrote my first novel based on that. It's a fictionalized account, and it includes the legend of a spook light, which is also a a legend that is actually actually across the entire United States. It's called different things, a ghost light, a spook light, um, Ezekiel's wheel. And it's actually a a legend about uh, this light that appears. It's unexplained. And we have one that's not far from where I grew up. It's um, called the Hornet spook light. 
and it's on um, basically on the border of Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas, um, not far from Joplin, Missouri. And if you go there at night in a particular spot, there's this strange light that rises up um, at night and just kind of bounces around like a little orb. And it has been studied, and even the the army the the army has studied it, and no one has ever been able to explain what this phenomenon is. So um, I combine those legends with the actual factual story of the Trail of Tears to create this book. Well, this definitely tells me where your skill comes from. It's it's in your genes um, because. I mean, Native American culture is so steeped in storytelling, which is, as you know, how traditions get passed down from generation to um I thank you for explaining to the listeners what the Trail of Tears is. Um, I had a, a very great opportunity. It, I guess it was maybe my pivot moment in a in a vac on a vacation to the Navajo reservation, and. It, it's funny that they also had the long walk is, is what they called it. It wasn't nearly as far, but again, the government was removing them from their land and, and many people died on the march to another state. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me. I've always been very, very interested in native American culture, living in Oklahoma myself for a long time. Um, you know, I was able to learn a lot while I lived there, and it, it's never left me. So I, I thank you for relating that story, and I'm sure the book is fantastic, too. So let's thank you very talk much. Ab- yeah. Let's, let's talk about why you felt compelled to write the book or tell the story of the murders of these young girls. Well, after the first book, I I wrote a second book, and the second one is actually a collection of essays, and some of them are funny, some of them are um, very, very sad and tragic, and they're essentially a compilation of, I I, I hesitate to call it a memoir because I I don't feel like I've lived enough life yet to to have a memoir, but it is a collection of stories that includes um, my journey to Africa and among other things. And so I was working on my third book, which I had always identified myself as a fiction writer. That's what I considered myself as. And my friend, a very trusted friend, told me that she felt like people related to my nonfiction writing much more than my fiction. And I was kind of taken aback by that and and a little bit shocked because I considered the fiction writing my art and the blogging that I did, the nonfiction that I wrote on Facebook and other other places, I just considered a pastime. Um and most of the most of the things I write are meant to make people laugh. Um I, I do get joy out of making people laugh, lightening the load of everyday life for people if I can. And so um on this this third book I was writing was was my second fiction novel because the first is fiction, second nonfiction, and then working on the third. And when I met up with this this friend, I had an old friend from law school. Her name is Maxie Riley, 
and we had met years before in law school. Um, it was 2001, and it it's strange that we hit it off because we were in two very different places in our lives. I was going through the heartbreak of a divorce and my family breaking up, and Maxie was just starting to fall in love. And um, so we were both in very different places, but somehow we clicked. I think it probably is because we're both from very rural, poor counties in Oklahoma, both country girls, um, somewhat out of place in a law school where you have a lot of sophisticated, um, very well-spoken individuals, highly educated, highly motivated, very ambitious. And so I think we both seemed like a couple of fish out of water and we just bonded. I, um, we became fast friends and then after law school was over, we both went our separate ways. And we lost contact for for quite some time. And I remember during that time driving through the area where this murder happened, and I remember seeing the the huge billboard with the pictures of the two little girls. I was in, in my own world at that time, and I really didn't watch any news. I, I was writing and uh, I just I re- just remember seeing that billboard, but I I really didn't know about the crime. I didn't know the details. Um, I just went on and um, with my own thing, and um, then in I would I think it was probably two or three years ago. Must have been three years ago. Maxie and I somehow um, made a connection again. I there's this music festival in Okima. It's called the Woody Guthrie Festival. And it's a it's a huge deal, and I was writing for a magazine in Oklahoma, and so I was I was going to be at that at that festival to write about the musicians there because I do um, some music reviews also, and I ran into Maxie, so we rekindled our friendship after all those years, and she didn't say anything about what had happened in 2008 at that time, but um, we just made plans to meet down on the Illinois River, which is in this a beautiful place in northeastern Oklahoma near Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And um, so we met and set up a camp by the river this this weekend uh, in, I think it was probably September or October. It was a beautiful fall. And we sat around a campfire, and um, Maxie was asking me about my writing career and how it was coming along. I think she, I think she respected me for my decision to pursue my passion. I think she also maybe felt a little sorry for me because, uh, obviously, when you go from practicing law to selling your own books, you take quite a cut in your salary. <laughs> um, but we were sitting around the campfire, and she was asking me about how my third book was coming along, my this fiction novel that I've been working on. And I was I was expressing how I was having a little bit of difficulty with the third book, and she said, "Well, I've got a story for you to write." And initially, I just kind of rolled my eyes, um, and not out of disrespect to her, but just because when you when you write books, you get that all all the time people come up and say hey you should write a book about my life which i a- absolutely believe that every life is book worthy we all have tragedy and triumph and but the thing is i i i can only write one book at a time so i really thought yeah right but for my friend i said well yeah let's hear the story so she starts telling me about the 2008 murders of these little girls 
and she said and she she told me I I prosecuted that crime and I was just floored I had no idea that this old pal from Okima was in any way involved in in this tragic crime and when she started telling me the story the hair stood up on the back of my neck I, I it was actually unbelievable to me the details of this thing um, and the more she told me, the more I, I just was overwhelmed. And so the book was, the idea for the book was literally born under the stars um, next to the river. <laughs> um, and when she was done telling me about the crime and every and the prosecution and everything that came after, um, I said, you're right, that's absolutely a book. And that was the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's start with what happened to... These two little girls, Skyla Whitaker and Taylor Placker, who, if memory serves me right, they were probably preteen or just maybe 13, 12, 13. And again, just a couple little country girls out on a country road playing one day. And then what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, um, you're right. Taylor was 12 and her best friend Skyla was 10. And um, they, this area that we're talking about is so rural and um, so sparsely populated that the, the school they were in was so small that even though they were in different grades and different ages, they were able to be in the same classroom together. If memory serves me right, it, it seems like their, their class together had maybe 10 or 12 students. So it's a very rural area. And these two little girls just hit it off immediately. And um, they they spent the night at each other's houses um, regularly as often as they possibly could. And that weekend was just another sleepover at, at Taylor's house, which was near Walitka on County Line Road. And um, they spent that first the Friday, the Saturday, they spent that Saturday playing, and they're both huge animal lovers. Um, and they would just take walks up and down the dirt road, and just um, less than a mile from their home is a bridge called Bad Creek Bridge. And the girls regularly walked there, and Taylor, in particular, loved to fish. So this was a regular hangout for Taylor. She loved the creek. And and that's a typical trait of a country girl in Oklahoma. Um, We love to be out in the fields and in the streams. And it's just a beautiful, wonderful place for a child to grow up. So these two little girls um, had their slumber party that night. And the next day, on Sunday morning, they slept in really late. And... um, so the grandparents were watching television, watching NASCAR on TV and messing around on the computer. The, it was a hot day in June. The AC was blasting and the television, you know, the NASCAR races were buzzing around. And the two little girls finally got out of bed um, for noon. And Skyla, the little girl who had come to stay with Taylor, they knew that her mother was going to be on her way to come pick her up that Sunday pretty soon. So they decided to take one last walk down to the bridge. And so Taylor went, she always asked permission of her grandparents before she went out. She asked her grandfather, can we take one last walk 
and the grandfather said, Ab- absolutely, no problem. Go ahead and just come right back because Skyla's mother's on the way to pick her up. So um, the girls walked out of the house, and they hadn't been gone but just a few minutes when the phone rang, and it was Skyla's mother calling to say, I'm on my way right now, Skyla, and please have her ready with her things when I get there. So the grandfather, whose name is Peter Placker, he got up and went out the door. The girls had left so recently that he thought he could probably just yell at them and tell them to come back home. So he uh, stepped out but couldn't see anything, Um, and it was a pretty well-direct line of sight from if he walked out into the road from his house to the bridge, and he couldn't see anything. So he thought that was a little strange. So he ran back in the house, put his shoes on, went back out to the road, started walking down the road. And in his words, he he almost walked on the girls before he saw them. And the two little girls were lying in the ditch. Um, Skyla was up on an embankment and his granddaughter Taylor was lying in the ditch. And the grandfather, of course, was in shock and he ran over and felt for a pulse. He he initially thought that the girls had been run over by a vehicle, that someone had hit them with a vehicle and knocked them into the ditch and drove drove away. Um, but he felt both of them and um, saw that there was no pulse. And he ran back into the road and started screaming um, for someone or for his wife to call the ambulance to call 911. And he um, frantically went through his, um, his granddaughter's backpack and found her cell phone and tried to dial out, but it's such a rural area that he was unable um, to get connection at first. And then, and then eventually he was able to um, reach his daughter who was on her way home from work. He had two other daughters and this was an older daughter who was, had been working and she was on her way home and he was able to get in touch with her, finally make contact and he just had four words to say and um, those were, they killed our babies Um, because by then he had realized that both girls had been shot. How absolutely awful. I, I just, you know, it's just, I can't even imagine the the feeling that went through that man's gut. Um, so the this happened in 2008, and then I, I know you know different law enforcement agencies were involved. Um, did they have someone on the radar? Did did they have any idea who would do such a thing from the beginning? Or I know the investigation took quite some time. They really uh, were flummoxed for quite some time, for several years, and um, the community was essentially terrorized because uh, it's such a quiet, little sleepy place, and the authorities immediately said, this has got to be someone local. Because if you saw the place and if you drove out to the place, you would understand there's no, there's really zero chance that some person, some random person is just going to randomly be driving down this dirt road. It is, it, it's probably, 
it's several miles of dirt road and just the chances of someone randomly driving back there were pretty much nil. So this community is panicked because they know there's someone living among them who is a brutal murderer, a senseless murderer and and they're and everyone's looking at each other, they're starting to suspect um the OSBI initially someone had reported that they saw a Native American man and the OSBI that who was suspicious, acting suspicious on the day of the murders and the OSBI um, acting on this person's tip generated this very generic um, sketch of a Native American man. And um, that led the OSBI kind of on a wild goose chase and it really set the, the investigation in the wrong direction. Um, and that turned out to be um, a red herring. It, it really didn't turn out to be helpful at all to the investigation. And so uh, this went on for several years. And they were really the OSBI. I should mention the OSBI is the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Um, they were uh, they were desperate for anything, for any tips. And um, there was a grand jury that and several suspects went before the grand jury and uh, the grand jury declined to indict any of any of these suspects because they were ultimately cleared of any involvement um, and so the OSBI was um, very frustrated and it seemed like there was a possibility that this crime would not be solved um, and and you can imagine the pressure from not just the community but the entire state and even the nation, as you mentioned, this crime um, captured the attention even on a national level. And so it was at least three years before finally got a lead. And that was that was when the third person was murdered, or actually the third victim disappeared. And that was Ashley Taylor. Now, I should mention um, at the initial crime scene, they found shell casings. So that was ultimately um, how the case was solved was through ballistics. And But um, the, third, the third victim disappeared in 2011, and her name was Ashley Taylor. So let's, let's talk about how Ashley and her murder were connected to this. Can you explain? Okay. And, and I think, yes. you know, people really need to get this book to read the details, um, of especially of how it was solved through the ballistics, because there were some things in there I, I had no idea about, but we can get into that later. Um, but yeah, let's go back and talk about how Ashley's murder was connected with these girls. Okay. Um in 2011, the um, the police got a call about a missing person, and that was from the family of Ashley Taylor. Ashley was 23 years old, and she had been seeing a gentleman named Kevin Sweat for several years. They'd been in a relationship. They were living together, and she had been telling her family that she was going to marry Kevin, that um, he had asked her to marry him in New Orleans, that they were going to elope, and that she would return in two weeks. 
So um, she gave her mother the specific date when she should be back. And on that, that date, that date came and the date passed and no Ashley. And it was, it was very unusual for her mother not to hear from her, at least on a daily, if not a daily, then every other day basis. And Ashley had two younger um, siblings who had special needs, and she was very close to to her two younger siblings, and she would always contact them. And um, one of the siblings uh, had a birthday that came and went and no contact from Ashley, and that was when, in in her mother's words, um, that she knew something was terribly wrong. And so finally um, she contacted the police department um, to let them know that Ashley was missing. And at, at the same time, Ashley's family went to go confront her fiancé, Kevin Sweat, at the apartment that they they had shared together. And they surrounded Kevin. He was in his car trying to leave, and the family kind of surrounded the vehicle and would not allow him to leave. And Ashley's, um, one of Ashley's family members went up to, I believe it was Ashley's father, went up to the car door to confront Kevin to ask, where is my daughter? And Kevin would only respond, um, I suppose you're going to blame me for this, just like the the Walika girls. And that actually, his words um, were what connected the crime to begin with. No one else had connected it to that point. But in his own words, he connected the crime. Let's talk a little bit about Kevin Sweat. Um, what do we know about his background? It's a it's a really strange, that's one of the strange parts about this story is that when it came time to find out about who Kevin Sweat is as a person, that was really a difficult thing for me. I couldn't get, I couldn't find very many sources um, who were willing to talk about Kevin Sweat or even he was really a loner. Um, even from the time he was a young boy, he was a loner and he had some strange behaviors, although, and, and that's in hindsight, of course, but I um, heard someone told me that he would dress up not on Halloween, but on regular days, he would dress up like Dick Tracy and hide in a, in a trash can at school and pop out to scare people, which, you know, for, any other person you would think, oh, that's cute and kind of funny. But in hindsight, now that we know what he's done, it's it's really pretty strange. Um, we know that he, uh, his his family, split up when he was young, um, and we and I I know from speaking with a former very close friend that um, he he kind of relished being that loner individual. But when you look at the pictures online of Kevin, it's I'm struck by how different he, it's almost like a chameleon. He never really looks like the same person in any one picture. Uh, he looks so different. One at one point he looks kind of like a chubby teenager with red curlish hair, uh, and then in the next picture he's dressed like a goth with long brown hair and kind of gaunt. And then when you see his picture when he was booked, it it's almost like a completely different person now that you're looking at. 
and he it looks as though he's kind of embraced um a very grim i, I would almost say he he when i look at his picture when he's when he's being booked into in for the murders it looks like the eyes of of an evil person to me yeah he kind of had that dead eyes look that you see so often yes. with with sociopathic behaviors and you know I agree with you I can remember when we were looking into Kevin pretty heavily online and and you're right his online presence was so weird because he he it's like he could change personalities he could change his look he could change into a totally different person it was just very very odd um and that's, you know, some of the writings and so forth that we had uncovered that he did um, were were very dark. So he definitely was, dark. was a very dark person. Very dark. And um, his art was very dark, which, of course, I would never um, say that someone who expresses their artistic ability in in dark ways is a is a bad person. I certainly don't believe that I write scary books. So. I don't believe that at all, but um, absolutely considering what he he was ultimately convicted for, when you go back and look at his art, it's haunting. He uh, on his art uh, art blog, he had pictures of, for instance, one picture that really was very disturbing to me uh, was a picture of a pool of blood with a baby's pacifier just sitting in the pool of blood. And in another photograph, there it, there was a, a hand grasping onto a tiny bird as if to squeeze it to death. And it was just really extremely disturbing images. And also he, he drew his own comic book and adopted the moniker Johnny Darkness. And those were also extremely disturbing and violent cartoons that he drew. So going back to when when the uh, Ashley Taylor's parents confronted him and he basically mm-hmm. gave that clue. I mean, and it was a huge mm-hmm. clue uh in my mm-hmm. opinion as to exactly what happened. So let's take the story from there and how how did they put it together and when, when and why was he arrested for um, the murders? Um, so after after he made the comment about, I suppose I'm going to be blamed for this, just like the Walitka girls, the OSBI, and th- there had been a gentleman by the name of um, Agent Titsworth, and he was involved from the very beginning. He and uh, Maxie Riley, I should say Judge Riley now because She's actually a judge in Oklahoma now. Judge Riley, but at the time she was the prosecutor, she and Kurt Titsworth were were the essential two law enforcement officers that case and just gave countless hours to investigate. And so Agent Titsworth executed a, a search warrant for Kevin Sweat's father's property. And uh, on the property, he discovered a fire and obviously something had been burned in this fire. Um, There were, there were various 
things that he found in the fire, including um, a broken pair of glasses, um, a woman's button from a piece, an article of a woman's women's clothing, uh, several little things like that. Through this burn pile, they began to find very tiny shards of some material that they weren't sure what it was. And they sent this material off to uh, to be so that they could do testing with the OSBI lab forensics testing, and it turned out to be 20% of a human skeleton that um, had obviously been dismembered and burned in the fire. And eventually those remains were identified as Ashley Taylor. Um, How horrific. At the same time that it is, it is truly horrific. And uh, they also found her little engagement ring in that fire. And so at the at the same time that that search warrant executed, they found more shell casings on the father's land, Kevin Sweat's father's property, and they collected those gun case, those shell casings. So ultimately, that is how. Besides Kevin's initial comments about about how he would be blamed for all three crimes. Uh, the the ballistics testing is ultimately what really sealed the deal on the evidence against Kevin Sweat. So he was arrested, um, and and I might make note too that it this was Maxie Riley's first big case, right? As a prosecutor, it it absolutely was. It was her first big case, and. Um, she had never come up against anything like this before she it's and that's really to me i wasn't sure when i first started researching and looking into the case i really didn't know how i was going to frame this book i didn't know from from what vantage point i would tell the story but then as i started learning more and more about judge riley's experience uh in the investigation it soon became clear to me that she would be the protagonist and the story would be had to be told through her eyes because she had just uh, had she had a newborn at home when the little girls were shot in 2008 and she was kind of a a newbie she hadn't been tested yet in the district attorney's office and um she got the call to go out to the murder scene in t- in 2008 and she it was on a sunday she was sitting at home cradling her little 3 month old baby And she got the call and she had to hand the child over to her husband and she had to strap on her pistol and go out to the crime scene. So to me, it was an extraordinary tale from her vantage point of how she was really untested and green and um, her evolution through the case, through the investigation, ultimately the prosecution. And then, and then uh, obviously she's had been a very successful uh, success story, which I thought was a great story from the point of view of these two little girls who were murdered. Maxie really is not was not that different growing up. She did she came from a family that um, was probably uh, not very wealthy. I mean, she came from a poor county, so it was definitely a struggle for her to get out of that county. Um, 
and to go make something of herself, and she worked hard at it. And I think that's what makes this story so amazing is that through all of this tragedy, you have someone who wasn't really that different from the two little girls that were lost who ultimately was able to seek justice to go after the killer of the little girls. And to me, that brings a little bit of redemption to such a horrific tragedy. I have to agree with you wholeheartedly on that. I think telling the story from her vantage point was key um, because in, in all, in through all of that, you could, you could sense her vulnerability and, even seasoned detectives or seasoned prosecutors probably wouldn't have handled it as well as she did. And, you know, my hat goes off to her for having the ability to bring this all the way to trial and to be successful in getting a conviction. Um, But that's, you know, even after the conviction, that wasn't the end of the story for Kevin Sweat and his drama, was it? No, it was really insane, and I I do have to agree with you, by the way, that I thought it was important to, I think people make assumptions about not not just women, but probably anyone who is a prosecutor, that they're these hardened um, uh, people who probably don't have a lot of feelings, but as when when Judge Riley started telling me the story, it was obvious to me that she had been deeply moved um, by the experience of prosecuting Kevin Sweat and seeking justice for these two little girls and Ashley Taylor. Um, she And it changed her as a person. She has two young children now, and she will never let her children go for a walk on their own. She, uh, they, can't, they can't go. So going through something like that is deeply emotional, deeply troubling, and something that you have to carry with you for the rest of your life that she actually had to see the side of those two little girls lying in the ditch. So she has absolutely carried it with her. And and indeed she was traumatized yet another time, even after the case, Kevin ultimately had decided that he, he was going to take a blind plea. And this was after all of the evidence had been put together, the, the ballistics um, with the gun and uh, also they they were able to find what they thought was a motive for why he would have murdered the little girls. And so his defense attorneys finally, they had been determined to go to trial, but with all of this mounting up against him, Kevin agreed to take a blind plea to avoid the death penalty because the prosecutor was seeking the death penalty. And so on the day of sentencing, they were in this small – the halls of the courthouse in – in well, in Okima. The, the trial was in Okima, and they had been through the pretrial proceedings. It's a small – just like most courthouses in Oklahoma, the county courthouse, it's, it's really small. The halls of justice are pretty narrow, and it's not unusual at all for prosecutor, um, defense team, and even – um, the the person who's about to go on trial, the accused, to meet right up in the middle of these halls um, as they go into the courtroom or, or pre- preparing for trial. So Kevin Sweat was in the hall with his attorneys, with his defense attorneys, and 
his defense attorneys had Kevin be unmanacled so that he could appear for his sentencing before the judge. They thought that it would demonstrate his humanity for, for him to be able to take the handcuffs off. And so um, the prosecutor, Maxie Riley, was in the hall, and she, the way she told told the story to me was that she saw this flurry of activity at the end of the hall. And what happened was as the defense team was beginning to take their client, Kevin Sweat, into court, Kevin Sweat, <clears throat> excuse me, Kevin Sweat attacked his own defense attorney. His name was Peter Astor. And Kevin had somehow smuggled a razor in. We think that he smuggled it in his mouth, but no one knows for sure. And he was able to get that razor and get his hands around his defense attorney's neck. And luckily, just as he was, as he made the move, his defense attorney was able to get his hands up. So Kevin wasn't able to get, the, he he did cut the attorney's neck, but it was not, it wasn't a serious wound. And by the time that happened, the courthouse security had took Kevin down to the ground. They actually, and when they took him out, they broke his nose and, and his glasses and but uh, he he did he did try to cut his his own attorney's neck on sentencing day. You know, it's, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> it's just that's what that's why I was so struck by the story. The I, right. I, I would hear a detail as I was looking into it, and I would think that that there's no way that actually happened. And then I'd turn the page and get to the next detail, and it was just as if not more shocking than the the detail before it's just an extraordinary story i've never heard anything like it it is an extraordinary story and it it's in my opinion i'm happy that you were able to do this and do it as well as you did to have all of the information about this case in in one place so that you know, readers can, or people who are interested in knowing about this can go from point A to point B and get the full story. I think that's really important. I I know at the time, things were just all over the place. And for you to put it Mm -hmm. together as well as you did, um, I think it's, it's an important book. It definitely is an important book. And, um, so how how has it been received in in Oklahoma and outside of Oklahoma? The reception has been overwhelming. With the first two books, I've been known as a local author and I have a decent following on Facebook and my and my blog, my writer's blog. And this book has only been out for 3 weeks and it has really blown up much more. I've already sold more copies of this third book than my first two combined. And it's been an overwhelming response. One that I would say, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm overconfident here, but I really wasn't sure as I was putting the book together, I didn't know how it would be received. I certainly never set out to be a true crime author, although growing up, I did love true crime books, true crime novels, uh, hugely influenced by In Cold Blood. But um, after I had written most of the book, and I hadn't shared it with anyone, really, and I I had an outing with my dad, and I just had a little 
part of the chapter, chapter three, which details the murder of the little girls. And I decided I would read that portion of the chapter and it was raining out. It was, the rain was coming down and I was sitting in the cab of this truck with my father and I started reading from this chapter and to my, I started weeping and I couldn't get through to read this excerpt to my dad without weeping. And, um, you know, that old adage, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. It was at that point that I realized that there was, this book was something special. Uh, that has been the reaction that I've had pretty much universally from every review. And it, I like to say, because I feel it's true, that the book has a life of its own. It's really kind of gone out of beyond my capability. I I really kind of thrown my hands up and said, okay, let's go, let's do this. And I'm, I'm just kind of being swept along, <laughs> along with it. And of course I can't complain. It's everything that I've, I really dreamed of and prayed for, but um, I'll, I'll have to say that it was at that point when I was reading it to my dad, when I realized that this book was different and I, I kind of had a feeling that it was, it was going to be a big deal. It's a it's very gratifying a moment for a writer. Yes, and, <laughs> Thank and you. too, because you have allowed a voice for the victims. And so often that doesn't happen. Uh, so often the victims are kind of, um, you know, the the afterthought. And even in a true crime book, I've, I've read many, 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 many true crime books and interviewed many authors. And a lot of the times it's it's the story is more about the psychology of the killer, which is an interesting facet in itself. And I'm sure somebody's going to come up with something about Kevin Sweat. You can bet on it. Um, but I, I think it was so heartwarming to me that you you were the voice for these victims and, and you made them real people and and flesh them out so well and um i i commend you for that i thought it was fantastic fantastic read and i highly recommend it so tell well, the audience i, I appreciate <laughs> where can they get a copy <laughs> um i have a website an author's website where all three books of all three of my books are available. That website is called readbooksby.faith. And you can order my book directly on that website, and I can sign the copy for you and ship it directly um, within 24 hours of the order. In the alternative, the book is also available on Amazon.com. And I'm also um, scheduling dates for this fall the book tour so hopefully as I am scheduling uh, dates for the book tour perhaps I will be coming to a town near you and I would love to have people come out and um, have and pick up a book and talk that's one of my favorite parts of the book tour is getting to meet people out on the road I, I think that's quite true I, I, I represent several different authors and I've always said you know, the most successful authors are those who meet their readers, and you're going to sell more books by meeting your readers and being available than you're ever going to sell from online. I, I just feel 
feel that in my bones. And I think you're going to be super successful with this book. I'm, I'm really, really pleased that we were able to meet on Facebook and that I was in, <laughs> able to read the book. It, it really held a lot of interest to me. Um, so I, I really commend you for all that you've put into it. I know you put your heart and soul into it and it shows. And again, I can't stress enough. The storytelling was just amazing to me. I, I just can't stress that enough. It was like, like I said earlier, like watching the movie in my head, I could see everyone and it all came together that way. Done very differently than a lot of other true crimes books that I've read. So Keep doing it. <laughs> I don't know. What, well, that, what do you have planned for the next book? <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that so much, and I and I very I was really heartened by your review of the book. Uh, I actually I had planned and to finish that fiction novel that I had been writing when Maxie came and suggested this true crime book to me. Uh, that and that's really what I what I want to do. However. Since this book has come out, I've had multiple, multiple people reach out to me to ask if I would write their family's victim story. So I'm having, I'm being um, in a way by all of these other stories, and I don't, I really don't know what's around the corner. I do know that I have to be writing uh, to be happy. So we'll see what comes <laughs> next. And um, thank you for your compliments about the book. I have heard a couple of. I have heard some rumors about a movie, so oh. we don't know where it's going. Like as I said, I'm just kind of being swept along with it. But I would, it would, I think it would make an amazing movie. I, I totally agree, and I thank you for taking taking us all along the ride with you. It's it's <laughs> just it's very heartwarming again to to be able to read the stories the way that they were told. So once one more time, what is the, the um, website address again, where people can order an autographed copy directly from you? The author's website is readbooksby.faith. F-A-I-T-H. Great. That is fantastic. And, you know, I, I wish you all of great success with this. I do hope you get a movie deal because I think it's, <laughs> it's definitely got all of the, especially if they do it the way you wrote it. You know, a lot of times script writers do different things to an author's book. So hang on to those rights as long as you can. Um, and I have a say so will. in the way that it's done because, you know, I, I would love to see the movie told just as you told just as you related it in the book, I think it was perfect. So, well, this brings us to the close of another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. I thank you, Faith Phillips. Get the book, Now I Lay Me Down. It's, it's something that you will not regret reading until the next time we are back together again. Stay safe out there, and please be kind to each other. Mm-hmm.